You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. So we see it as Emmanuel, a sign for the ages. This was a sign that God gave to Ahaz, but not to Ahaz only, but to all the children of Israel, all of the people of God. For all the time to come, a virgin is going to conceive and bring forth a son, bear a child. She's going to have a son. And this is going to be obviously a supernatural thing that takes place. When this happens, that child is going to be called Emmanuel, which by interpretation we know is God with us. We're going to look at that in chapter 8. This was significant news to the people of Israel. They were waiting for Messiah. They were expecting Messiah. They were expecting a king. But now... God has already hinted at it through all of the Old Testament passages to this point. But now there is no more question. There is absolute certainty that the Messiah is not just another prince or a king, but the Messiah is going to be God himself. And this was revolutionary. This was revolutionary to a people that served Jehovah, that served the God Amen. Of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the I am that I am, the self-existent one. And this was powerful. The absolute eternal God, amen, was going to come down and dwell with us. And he would be the king. He would be the savior. And if you want to know more about that, we spent uh, quite a bit of time at length this fall in our absolute series, talking about how Jesus Christ is the eternal, everlasting God come down and dwelt among us. We see in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, when Matthew quotes Isaiah 7 and 14, he says this, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1 and 23, Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. We're going to go over that in chapter number 8 of Isaiah. We see the translation, the interpretation. There's no mistake. This is what Matthew was quoting. But what he's saying is when Jesus Christ was born, that he was God with us. Luke chapter 1 and verse 32, Luke said this of the child that was going to be born. He shall be great. And he shall be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. So not only is he the Son of Man, the Son of Mary, human, but he is the Son of the Highest, that he is of God, Son. He's the offspring. He is the child, if you will. He is the... uh, 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 the offspring, the product. This is something that God is doing. He's the son of the highest. So who is the highest? Well, they, they knew the highest to be the invisible God. Paul said he's an invisible God. We, we can't see him. Jesus himself said, no man seeth God at any time. He's a spirit. He's transcendent. He's beyond our abilities to know him, to see him. Amen. But that transcendent absolute God made himself manifest. That's what John was recording when he said, in the beginning was the word, 
What's the word? The word is the logos or the revealed, the revealed of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so we have this transcendent God that we can't see. He's a spirit. He's beyond us. Amen. We can't know him in that sense except he makes himself knowable. But that transcendent God said, hey, I'm going to reveal myself. And so he became the word. There, there was the revelation of God, who he is, the full essence of God. That's the word. That's the word of God, the revealed of God. And then in John chapter 1 and 14, John's story of the Christmas narrative doesn't play out like everybody else thinks. He didn't talk about all the physical things. He's talking about the eternal implications, the spiritual implications here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so that is God with us. And so this was revolutionary. You've got to imagine. Now we look at the Bible, and we have 20-20 vision in certain sense because we're looking back. We know. But if you go back and stand at the position or the place that they were as they were walking through Scripture, they hadn't seen all this stuff yet. They didn't know how it was all going to play out. They didn't know the cross. They didn't understand all of those things. And so these prophecies were coming here a little, there a little, and there were little parts here and there. In fact, there was just parts that they would see. And uh, one would prophesy that he would be born... Uh, in Bethlehem. Another would prophesy that he would come up out of Egypt. Uh, another would prophesy, we're going to see here tonight, that he would be in the land of Zebulun and Galilee, over in that area. And yet Christ comes along and he fulfills all those, but they were just seeing in part. They didn't know. And so now Isaiah is, is giving them, amen, a truth that's ripping back the veil. This is God with us. Can I tell you, that's why we celebrate Christmas. <laughs> that's why we celebrate this day. Because it was God coming down and dwelling upon this earth. This is not just another story. It's not just another time. This is the greatest event that this earth has ever known to date. Amen. Hallelujah. That God comes down and dwells on this earth. Now I got good news. There's a, there's a greater event coming. And that's that he's coming back again. We're going to look at that next week. And we're going, to, we're going to see, because this is a sign for all the ages. And in chapter 9, we see things that haven't been fulfilled yet. Which means we're still standing in part. We, we've seen chapter uh, 7 fulfilled, what Isaiah was talking about. But we haven't seen it all fulfilled. So we're still standing in some ways with Isaiah, anticipating what he's going to do. And when he comes back, oh, what a great day that's going to be. What an awesome time that's going to be. And I'm going to enjoy that next week. That's going to be great when we get to that. But tonight... We're, we're not there yet, so we're going to look at this. First, I want to touch on just a couple technical things to help clear some things up. If you will notice, we just, we just flipped from Isaiah to Matthew, and we were reading the same passage. And in one place, Isaiah translates Emmanuel with an I, and we see it spelled with an I. And then in Matthew, it's spelled with an E. Did anybody else notice that and wonder why, why are those things spelled 
differently. And the reason why is because the text that we are, we are reading from tonight, the King James Version, uh, is translating it as it was written. And when we make translations from the Hebrew to English, in the Hebrew, the word that is there, it starts with uh, uh, a presumed vowel, of course, and that would be translated in our English normally to an I. But in the Greek, it starts with a vowel that we would translate in the English in an E. And so that's the only difference there. But it is the same thing, and it's acknowledged to be the same thing. Another point that I'd like to just highlight again, and we talked about it last week, was that in chapter 7, verse 14, make no mistake, it says that a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son and bear a son. That is properly translated. The word there that is translated virgin can also on other occasions in context, other occasions, be translated young woman, maid, damsel. But in this instance, it is correctly translated virgin. Now some translations that are out there would not translate this virgin. Some commentators would say that it is just a young woman. And, and you've got to pay attention to that because that is an attempt to discredit the deity of Jesus Christ. And there are hundreds of different Bible translations out there. And I made a statement last week saying that I uh, have spent a lot of times reading in various different translations. That's good to do for commentary. But when you're wanting to know what is it actually saying, what's the literal thing, you've got to make sure that you've got that right, that you know that word study. And of course, we know that the Jews themselves acknowledged that it was to be a virgin because when much of them fled after uh, the diaspora, they fled to Alexandria in, in Egypt. They translated their text into Greek and they translated it virgin. It was an understood thing. And Matthew quotes it and we know that this was a supernatural sign, that this was something that was phenomenal, that had never happened before, it'll never happen again. It was unique to Jesus Christ, God, manifest in the flesh. And I thank God that I know who He is. I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I enjoy studying who God is and what this is all about. Amen. The reason why people would attack this is because if they can discredit that Jesus was God, then they don't have to listen to what He says. <laughs> I'm here to tell you, we, we, better, we better listen to what he says. We better pay attention to what he says because there's a whole lot of things that he said that haven't come to pass yet. And when he comes back, he's going to make everything right. Amen. And I want to be on the winning side. I want to be on the right side of eternity. I want to be right by the Lord. All right, so let's go to Isaiah chapter number 8. And we're going to look at this. Isaiah chapter number 8. And I'll read through here, beginning at verse number 1. Moreover, the Lord said unto me. Now here, Isaiah is now stepping to the next phase. God said unto me. There's a change in the scene here. Take thee a great roll and write in it with a man's pen concerning Meher Shalel Hash Baz. And I took unto me faithful witnesses to record. Uriah the priest, and Zechariah the son of of Jeberechiah, and I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare 
a son. Then said the Lord to me, call his name, Meher Shalel Hashbaz. And this word, if you'll go back and look at that, this is the longest name that is listed in the Bible. So if anybody ever asks you, what's the longest name listed in the Bible? It's this, Meher Shalel Hashbaz. And it means, amen, it means quick to the plunder or swift to the spoil. Now here's something interesting about the prophets, and that's that God would oftentimes enlist their service not just to preach and proclaim the word of God, but to actually take to them a physical sign that would manifest or represent what God is doing. And sometimes they would live out a scene and a scenario, and then God would say, okay, use this as an illustration of what's happening. Here in this, in this scene, we see Isaiah, uh, and he, he's already referenced in the previous chapter that he has a son. And so we know that this has to be the second son or, or another son. And, and God is saying, listen, go and you and your wife are going to have a child. And this child is going to have a name. And this name is going to be a testimony before the people. And he said, I want you to write it down. And I want you to gather some witnesses that see what you have written. And you're going to say, this is the word of the Lord. God told me to have a son, us to have a son, and to name him quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil. That it's going to be a speedy work. That it's going to be a speedy demise that's going to come suddenly and it's going to be quick. And he says, have witnesses there that sign, that know, that can testify and say, I was there also. I know what he said was of God so that when it comes to pass, it will stand as a testimony that maybe they will see that if this is true, then maybe what else he's saying is also true. And so God is using him, as he's going to say later on, for a sign. And he says in verse 4, For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, before he's born, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. Now what, what's happening is, remember last week we were talking about uh, two individuals, a man by the name of Rezin who was king of Syria and a man by the name of Pekah, the son of Remaliah. And he was the king of the northern people of Israel or what they called Samaria. And he had aligned himself in a conspiracy, if you will, with the king of Syria. And they were intending to plot against Judah, set up a puppet king. They were going to over, overthrow Judah. And they then were going to be strong enough to withstand the king of Assyria. And so, that's confusing. But the king of Syria and the king of Samaria were trying to overtake Judah so they could withstand the king of Assyria, whose name happened to be Shennacherib. And they were trying to withstand him. And God says this, 
You are the people of God that left me, forsook me. You've aligned yourselves with people of this world. You're trying to come back and take over God's people and God's land so that you can live in your pagan ways and fight against more pagan people. And God says this, this is going to be a sign to you. And so he says, have a son. And so he has this child and his name is Mahal Shalal Hashbaz. And he's going to be a sign against all these things. Before the baby is born and can cry, it's going to be wiped out. It's not going to happen, not going to come to pass. We talked about this last week. And so the Lord spake unto me, now we move on to verse 5. The Lord spake unto me again saying, For as much as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh that go softly. Now, he's talking against, amen. He's talking against those people that rejected God. He said, and they rejoice in Rezin and Remaliah's son. He said, therefore, now therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks. What is God saying? Here's what God is saying. God is saying, look, I have tried to be a king to you. I have tried to be a protector for you. I have tried to bless your life. I brought you up out of nothing. And I gave you a land, houses you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant. All I said is put me first, honor me one day a week, take time from your labors, And if you'll do that, I will multiply you. I will bless you. I will make you fruitful. No kingdom can touch you. No people will come in and conquer you. I will be your God. I will fight your battles. And God said in all of that, that's the best deal you could ever have in the world. And God says in all of that, you still said no. I don't want the waters of Shiloh which go smoothly, which go softly, which go easy. But I'd rather have the turbulent waters of a heathen king, of of heathen people, because they were lusting after the things of this world, and they wanted to be just like the world. Folks, if this has ever been a message for a people, this is a message for us today in the year 2017, because I see our culture and our world is drunk upon the things of this world. We have so much worldly thinking, even within the context of the church, that we can't even understand what God is really saying in Scripture. We are so overcome in the West. Let me just step out on the soapbox for a little bit. We are so overcome in the West with success, with materialism, with ourselves. We are consumed with ourselves. If you don't believe that, just look at Facebook. Just look at social media. Just look at stuff. We are so consumed with ourselves. And God says, because you're consumed with yourselves, I can't be your God. I can't be your Lord. I can't be your master. You say, well, "Well, I'm not consumed with myself. I'm not consumed with myself. Well, we may say that, but in practice, what are we doing? We may be living in Jerusalem, in the city of God, but we're not allowing God to prove prove himself to us. And God is standing there. He is literally knocking on the door of Israel saying, hey, I want you to just ask me for a sign so I can show up and be your God. 
And so many people are worried. We won't even stop and say, God, I need you to work in my life. I need you to do this in my life. Now, I'm not preaching against you. I'm preaching against the spirit of our world, the spirit of our culture, the spirit of our nation. Folks, if you're just reading the news, if you're just opening your ears and listening to what's going on, we need God in this final hour, in this day that we're in. We need we need a revival, folks, of people that wake up and say, hey, we've got to have God. Because I'll tell you, politics is not going to fix it. And, 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 and I, don't, I don't want to offend anybody, but Jesus was neither Democrat nor Republican. I just want to let you know that. He's God. He stands all by himself. Don't get trapped in this worldly thinking, even among our church. Now, I, I will be bold enough tonight. I, I will be bold right here. Even among our church and among apostolic ministers and among preachers and among other people, they're stepping out into territory that I would dare not go because God has not sent me. And they're trying to line themselves with political sides. Can I tell you, this whole construct is collapsing. This thing is coming down. God is not Republican or Democrat. He's God. And everything else is going to fizzle. It's going to fail. And you got, you got hypocrisy on both sides of the aisle that is so gross, it's a stench in the nostrils of God. And I, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with people saying, hey, I don't like what you're saying. That's all right. I'm not here to win friends and influence people. I'm here to preach to people that are looking for an eternal home. And everybody else is going to reject it. You know why? Because they've already rejected the word of God. They've already said, God, I don't want a sign. I'm telling you, we need a sign. We need revival. We don't need another election. We need another prayer meeting. <laughs> we don't need another campaign. We need another revival. That's what we need to get a hold of our nation. Now, now, we live in a democracy, and you ought to do what you can to work for the things that you can. I believe that. Don't get me wrong. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I've been to the White House. I've done all that stuff, and bless God, I do all that stuff, and I pray and all that thing. But, but we need God to move on our side, and this is, this is, what, this is what Isaiah is saying. And, and he's saying, look, you have rejected the hand of God. Can I tell you, when, we don't, when God is not our first option then maybe we need to realign our priorities. If we have problems, let's bring this to our personal life. Forget about everybody else. Forget about the rest of the world. But let's bring this down to our personal life. When I am in crisis, if God is not the first person I turn to, then my perspective and my priorities are out of line. God should not be my last resort. He should be my first option. Is that all right? God, how can I do this? What should I do? God, I'm going to you first. Amen. Amen. Google is not going to help you <laughs> as much as God can help you. Now, I'm not, I'm not against academics. I'm not against intellect. I'm not against all that stuff, okay? If you, if you got a broken garage door, amen. You can kneel down and pray, but you probably need to Google that one too, okay? So don't, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying tonight. But he's saying, look, you rejected God. You rejected him. And so, therefore, God says, okay, you don't want me to be Lord of your life. I'm removing myself. Can I tell you that's why it's so important you keep Christ at the center of your marriage? 
Christ at the center of your heart, Christ at the center of your world, Christ at the center of your career, Christ at the center of everything, because we cannot compartmentalize God. Don't fall into that trap where we say, well, I go to church on Sunday, and I pray, and, I, and, and, and yeah, I hear, the, I hear the preaching of the Word, but then on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we live somehow else, and we compartmentalize God, and we move God out of the picture because God says, no, no, you do that, I'm going to step back, and this is what's going to happen. It's going to be quicker than you could even imagine swiftly it'll come in and everything's going to crumble. Look at what he says. Not only is it going to impact Syria and not only is it going to impact Samaria, but he says in verse 7, uh, he said, the king of Assyria, all his glory, he's going to come over all his channels and go over his banks. In verse 8, now he's talking to Judah and he shall pass through Judah. He's saying, hey Judah, you're not even off the hook because you you may have the city of God, you may be Jerusalem, you may have Mount Zion, but he's saying even the king of Assyria is going to come through you. He shall overflow and go over. Watch this. He shall reach even to the neck. What was the head of Judah? The head of Judah was Jerusalem. That was the head city. That was the capital. And so what God says is that the king of Assyria is going to come and he's going to conquer all the way up to the neck. And he's, the only thing he's not going to touch is Jerusalem. And would you believe it? In the year 701 B.C., Shennacherib comes through and after he makes a man mincemeat of Syria and Samaria, he comes down into Judah also and says, okay, okay, we'll have this arrangement. I won't touch Jerusalem, but I'm touching everything else. And he comes in. And then look at what it says. He shall reach even to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. And so now, here it is. This is, in, in, in the text, this is almost in a psalm fashion. There's a poetry being written here, a rhyme that's, that's being given here from verse number 6 on, on down. And so in verse 8, what he's saying is the king of Assyria is going to come through. But look at this little phrase. And this is one worth underlining or circling in your Bible because it's the last part. And he says, he's talking to God now. And he says, it's thy land. It's your land, O Emmanuel. Who's Emmanuel? Who is Emmanuel? He's the son that's going to be born of a virgin. He's the almighty, transcendent, absolute God. Manifest in the flesh. Come down. And what he says is this is not just Israel's land. This is not Abraham's land. God, this is your land. Jesus, this is your land. Can I tell you the nation of Israel? Amen. Today is back on the land that Jesus Christ belongs to. And we'll look at this next week. The greatest thing that's going to happen is when Christ comes back to this earth. And when he comes back to this earth, I'm going to tell you, God bless the USA, but he's not coming to the USA. He's not coming. He's not coming over to the UK. He's not going to China. He's not going down into Africa. He's not going over to Australia. When Jesus Christ comes back, the Bible says he's going back to his land. And his feet, I'm getting ahead of myself, but they're going to set on the Mount of Olives. And the Bible says that the mountain is going to be split in two. And then... He's going to march down across the valley of the Kidron, and now he's going to go into the eastern gate, which Suleiman the Great 
had walled up, totally bricked up. You know why? Because he knew that the Messiah was supposed to come through those gates. But can I tell you, you can't put brick up and expect the transcendent God who could break every barrier to manifest in the flesh to be kept out of his city by just a few little stones. And it says, it's thy land, O Emmanuel. And so now Isaiah is having this discourse with God and with people. And look at what he goes in verse 9. And he says, associate yourselves, O people, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Give ear. Now Isaiah is talking to the enemies of God. The tone has changed. He's talking to the enemies of God. And look at what he said. Associate yourselves, O ye people. But you shall be broken in pieces and give ear, all ye far countries. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand. Why? For God is with us. <laughs> Isaiah is taking consolation, not in the children of God who are backslidden, not in Judah and Ahaz who reject the sign of God, but Isaiah now is stepping into a prophetic moment, and he is speaking against the enemies of God, and he's saying, go ahead, associate yourselves, do everything you can to come against the people of God, but you will be broken in pieces. You're going to be broken in pieces. Take counsel, speak whatever you want against God's people and God's plan, but it's going to come to naught. It shall not stand. You know why? Because I have an eternal prophecy that God is with us. Hallelujah. Isaiah could take refuge in that hope back then, and we can take refuge tonight in that hope now and say, hey, look, I don't have to worry about the, what the world says about me. I don't have to worry about what anybody else says about me. When I have given my life to God, they can speak against me, but it's not going to stand because God is with us. Ha <laughs> ha. And the New Testament writer translated it in this phrase, if God be for us, who can be against us? Oh, clap your hands unto the Lord tonight. Hallelujah, hallelujah. God's on my side. That's literally what he's saying. If God be for us, who can be against us? Doesn't matter what you do. Can I tell you, sometimes you just got to tell the devil, get your hands off my life, get your hands off my future, get your hands off my family. Hello? God's with me. Uh-uh. I, I, I've already been to the water. I've been baptized. I've been converted. I'm living for God the best. I'm not perfect, but I'm living for God the best that I can. And so there is nothing that comes into my house. There's nothing that comes into my home, amen, that God has not already permitted. And if God permitted it, it means he's already provided the way of escape, the deliverance, the healing, and the salvation. And our trust is in God. It's in Jesus Christ. Folks, that's a great faith to have today. That's a great hope to have that peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Amen, amen, amen. Brother Chuck, we just, you just celebrated five years. Was it yesterday or Tuesday? Yesterday, that is Tuesday. Five years of our dear brother Jensen being cancer-free. Amen, what God has done in his life. Look at what God has done in his wonderful life. Amen. Now sometimes things happen. Sometimes things come. Amen. 
But when you give your life to God and you put your family under the banner of the Lord, you can step back. Amen. I know it's hard, but you can say, God, you've got your hand on this. I'm going to trust you. Why? Because God is with us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? We ought to take that same consolation together with him. Verse 11. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. Note, there's a change in the narrative here. And now God is speaking to Isaiah. And he's saying, Isaiah, do not walk in the way of this people. By the way, we could talk a little bit more about the way of the people, but you can fill in the blanks. The ways of the people, they had associated themselves with paganism. They had associated themselves with idolatry. Now, today, we don't have paganism in America, or so we think. But it's plastered on the billboards and every magazine. It's all over our country. We do the same things, but we qualify it, and we quantify it, and we have academic labels for it, and we talk about it now in different terminologies. When they were pagan and they worshipped their gods, they were involved in gross immorality. All idolatry involved nakedness. You look at one of the prevailing characteristics of our culture now, today. What? All kinds of immorality and all kinds of nakedness. It's 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 a known thing. In fact, if you're clothed anymore on a hot day, you're the weird one. Come on. That's, That's the culture that we're living in today. When they would worship gods, you know what they did? Because of all their immorality, immorality does something. You have all kinds of children that are not in a home, that you have extra children that you weren't planning on having. And so they would do something with those children. They would take those babies and they would sacrifice them through the fire. They would go and they would sacrifice them. Even even, uh, the king of Judah by the name of Manasseh involved the children of God in that kind of worship for a while. And on the southwest corner of Jerusalem, there's a valley that goes up on the left side. And that they call today the valley of hell because it's where they would take the babies and they would burn the bodies. And the stench that came from the burning flesh of those babies could be smelled in that area. Now today we take them into nice little rooms and it happens behind closed doors and the children that you don't want, you can just, it's it's no problem. But folks, there's no difference. We have taken paganism and we have grown it up and we have dressed it up and act like we don't have it. And you know what God's word is saying? He's saying this, Isaiah, don't walk in the way of this people. Don't walk in the way of this people. Why is preaching always a non-popular thing? You ever notice the popular preachers, they, they never ever, they never really tell everything. Isn't that the truth? Because you, you speak the word of God and you're not going to be popular. Folks, you want to be a preacher, you are signing up for people to hate you. In this day and age, you want to speak the truth, you're signing up for people not to like you. And that's what Isaiah was saying. And here's what God is saying. Don't walk in the way of this people. There's a don't that's attached to that. Amen. 
And so when Isaiah stands up, don't walk in the way of this people. So as a preacher, I have been, amen, burdened many times by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God to preach, hey, we've got to be careful not to do this. Do not do this. You look at the Apostle Paul. How many times would he open up his Bible and he say, oh, praise God. I love you so much, wonderful brothers and sisters. And then you get a little bit farther and he said, but you guys are doing things that are despicable, that are separating from God. Don't do this. This is what Isaiah was called to do. Don't walk in the way of these people. Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. So he's saying, don't walk in the way of the people. Don't speak like they speak. Don't fear as they fear. But look at what he says. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear. And let him be your dread. You know what he's saying? Don't focus on the world. Focus on God. Focus on Christ. Amen. Focus on Christ. After the holiday season in January comes, we, we've practiced month of prayer and fasting. Amen. Of special focus, of intensity. Starting off our year right. Amen. Setting everything else aside. What? To draw ourselves back into a focus with Christ. A focus with God. Stop worrying about everything else. And here he says, let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Jesus said it this way. Don't fear man that can destroy the body. But fear man that can destroy the body and the soul. That sits in judgment of the soul. And then look at this in verse 14. And he shall be for a sanctuary. Somebody say a sanctuary. He is a refuge. Who is he? God. Emmanuel. God with us. He's a sanctuary. This is a sanctuary, folks. <laughs> I'm thankful. I'm thankful that this is a sanctuary, a safe place. Why? Because none of us were perfect. Every single one of us came in here with, with sin in our life, with baggage. Some of us are still carrying those things. And God is long-suffering, but this is a refuge, a refuge from the world, a refuge from sin, a refuge from the accusers of our life. And we can find grace and we can find mercy in Christ. But then he goes on and he says, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense... To both the houses of Israel. What's he talking about? He's talking about the divided kingdom of Israel. Both houses of Israel. He's saying when Emmanuel comes. When Jesus comes. When Emmanuel God with us comes. He's going to be a rock of offense. He's going to be a stumbling block to both houses. And of course Paul talks about that in the book of Romans. When Christ did came for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be Taken. Bind the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait upon the Lord. This is Isaiah talking here, that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. He's hiding his face. Why? Because, because he opens up the text of Isaiah and says, Hey, I'm not going to hear your sacrifices, I'm not going to hear your offerings anymore, because it's just lip service and you're not living it. And God literally said, I will put my fingers in my ears. And I will not hear your prayer because you're just going through the lip service, but you want nothing to do, amen, with my life that I have to give to you. And so here it is. Behold, he says, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel. He's talking about his children. God's saying, you're going to use them for a sign and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth 
in Mount Zion. When they shall say unto you, seek unto them with, that have familiar spirits unto wizards that peep. This is witchcraft. He said, and that mother, should not a people seek unto their God? For the living to the dead? How is it that the living are going to seek advice of the dead? How, how can they give you advice in that scenario? He says to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The light is gone out of them. And they shall pass through it hardly bestead and hungry, and it shall come to pass. And when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness. Look at this. Dimness of anguish. And they shall be driven to darkness. This is the prophecy that Isaiah is giving. He's saying because they rejected God, this is how far they're going. Can I tell you, you ought to listen to the word of the Lord. When you don't follow the pathways of God in your life, can I tell you, it will lead you to a place of utter devastation. I wish I could say that every person I set, shared a pew with is still living for God. I wish I could say every person that I, I spent in all-night prayer meetings is still living for God. I wish I could say everyone I know that's been called of God, that has served God, that has ministered before the Lord is still living for God. But Paul even identified some among him when he said this after he spoke about those who were his fellow laborers in the gospel. Later on, he picks up the pen and the same thing he says of that same man, Demas hath forsaken us. He says it in grievance. He says it in despair. And he says, having loved this present world, he's forsaken us. This is what Isaiah is saying. These people, I'm preaching the word of God. I'm giving a sign. And yet nobody wants to hear. And he says, there's, there's darkness that's coming in their future. There's darkness that's coming in their life. And can I tell you, I've met the faces of those people who have walked away from God. And now they sit in places... Some of them not even alive anymore because they would not survive it. Now, I believe in the prophetic. I believe that God still can speak into people's lives. I still believe that God can speak to somebody on behalf of somebody else. I, I don't take that lightly, but I want to tell you, the Word of God is something that you better be listening to, that you better be paying attention to. And Isaiah was trying to do everything he could to get the attention of this culture. And nobody would listen. And so it dies out. Chapter 7 ends in despair. Dimness of anguish. They shall be driven to darkness. In fact, the next few prophets down in Scripture, you're going to hear of a man by the name of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is going to follow Isaiah. And Jeremiah said, it's going to get so bad that the children of Israel are going to be eating their own children. And it came to the place to where they were eating their own children. How bad does it have to get before you wake up and realize, God, we need you. We need you. In the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this despair, Isaiah chapter 9 begins. And I want to close with this, because here's where he leaves us. And we'll follow this up next week, because this is so powerful. And in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1, at the lowest point of darkness, look at what he says. Nevertheless, 
I'm going to tell you, it doesn't matter how dark it gets. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. It's never over until God says it's over. And there's always a nevertheless. That's why I still believe in the power of repentance. That's why I believe as long as there is breath in the body, it doesn't matter where they are, if they will turn and repent. They could be moments away from death. But if you will turn and repent at the last moment, nevertheless, God has a message of hope. There's a window of hope that's going to come. Amen. I still believe. Amen. I hope nobody in here ever walks away from God. But if we do, if we stumble, oh, I pray that there would be a moment. Give us five seconds, Lord, before our life on this earth passes. We catch ourselves in a place long enough to repent of our sins and say, God, I need you. Why? Because there's a nevertheless. And here's what he said. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. When at the first he lightly offended afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and after did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. Folks, he is getting so geographically specific. He's saying in in Nebulun, in Zebulun, in Naphtali, by the way of the Jordan, across the river, in Galilee. You know where that is? If you'd follow the map out, it is smack dab right where Capernaum, as we call it, is. Capernaum is. Capernaum is right there on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was raised in Nazareth which is not by Galilee. It's a couple hours. In fact, it would have been more than a day's journey to Galilee. Jesus was raised there. But when he goes to do his ministry, you know where he came? He walks all the way from Nazareth, all the way to the Sea of Galilee, to the land, amen, of Capernaum or Capernaum. And he goes there and in that synagogue, he grabs the scroll and he stands up and he opens up to the book of Isaiah. And he reads from the prophecy later on where Isaiah says, he hath anointed me to preach the gospel. He hath anointed me to open up the prison doors. He's anointed me to open up the blind eye. Christ was fulfilling this passage and here's what he said. The people that walked in darkness in verse 2 have seen a great light and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them hath the light shine. Oh hallelujah. That's what Matthew quotes in Matthew chapter number 4 when he said the same thing. Let's go there. Matthew chapter number 4. This is too good. Amen. Not to pay attention to Matthew chapter number four. Where am I at here? Amen. Verses 13. Let's go Matthew chapter number four, verses 13 here. It says, let's go 12. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast in prison, he departed into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast. Look, in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, 
and to them which sat in the region, the shadow of death, light is sprung up. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was fulfilling the prophecy that it came to pass. Look what he says in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 9. Thou hast multiplied the nation and you have not increased the joy. You haven't increased the sinful pleasures, but you multiplied the nation and they joy before thee according to the joy in harvest and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. Folks, this is good news that Isaiah is coming to. He said, hey, it's going to get dark, but God is coming. Jesus is coming. And when he comes, wow, there's going to be such great peace that comes on the world. And I close with this. This is a prophecy we haven't fulfilled yet. In verse number 5, this is the last verse. Verse number 5. Now we have the KJV here, which is an old English that we don't use anymore, so we're not going to understand what it says. Okay? What it says is, For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise, and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and with fuel of fire. This is a good verse. What he's saying here, if I would read it to you, Amen, in... My, my preferred and favorite non-KJV text would be the modern English version that just came out in 2014. It's probably the best thing out there. Amen. It helps you when you get in difficult times like this. The best thing beyond the KJV, that is. And this is how he says it. If you leave that verse up there, this is how it reads. For all the sandals, some translations say boots. That's an old word that was translated battle. All the sandals of the trampling warrior and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. And that word that was translated battle of warrior is with confused noise is referencing a piece of armor that would go around the ankle or the foot. And so when they would march, it would make much noise. And so it was a loud noise. And what he's saying is when Jesus Christ comes and establishes his kingdom... There shall be war no more. <laughs> and every tool, every garment that's used for war, he said, it's going to be good for nothing but just use kindling for the fire. You're not going to need it anymore. Can I tell you, the lion's going to lay down with the lamb. It is going to happen someday. Amen. We're still in war today, so we know it hasn't happened, but we can hang our hope upon this. Emmanuel, a sign for the ages. If you don't believe me, you just stick around a while because someday Jesus Christ is coming back. And someday you're going to find out. I hope it's not too late. I hope you've already made your decision for Christ at that time. But I'm thankful that there shall be war no more. Would you stand together with me?